Consequence Podcast Network. I don't want to scare anyone, but I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there, some sort of demented creature surviving in the wilderness, full grown by now. Some folks claim they've even seen him right in this area. From the cold, chilly cabins of Camp Crystal Lake to outer space, we are Halloweenies. Greetings, trick-or-treaters, and welcome to another episode of Halloweenies. Right now, we are technically in a Jason Voorhees podcast, but we are going back in time a little bit for an episode that many of you requested. Um, We're going to call this a Michael Myers podcast today because I am here with the great Steph Hutchinson, uh, writer and creator of so many of the Halloween comics that we always talk about on the on the pod. Um, he also created the documentary film, uh, Halloween 25 Years of Terror. Um, just a, a quick... Uh, just a, a quick disclaimer, I am recording this from my own home without all the fancy equipment that we normally have in Chicago. Um, I am babysitting a friend's dog who is in here with me, so you might hear a dog sleeping, maybe maybe farting, I don't know. Um, but So if the audio quality is a little bit different, uh, that is why. So um, we'll just get right into it. Uh, we have Steph here calling from, uh, what, what town, are you in Manchester, Steph, or where in England are you? Uh, just outside of it, just outside of it. Nice. Um, yeah, and I'm so excited to talk to you today. I mean, I've been a, a big champion of these comics for a long time and just a big fan of them, and there's lots of stuff I want to ask you, and we'll get to all of it. But before all that, something we like to ask all of our guests that we have on the show is just, how did you get into Halloween? What, when was the first time you saw it? How has it influenced your life? I saw it when I was uh, very, very young. It wasn't the first horror movie I saw. I think that was the Hammer film. I think that was uh, <clears throat> Cry of the Banshee or something like that, from what I remember. Um but I remember seeing the actual commercial for it. And it was a scene with Tommy Doyle looking out of the window and uh, being quite freaked out because he could see, you know, the, the boogeyman, or we say mm-hmm. the boogeyman or so over here, uh, the boogeyman outside. Um, and I think that was, that's like the sort of first image I remember of it. Now, I don't know if I saw it the first or the second time it aired. I seem to remember it being on the same night as Jaws, but I might be wrong about that. But I remember being absolutely terrified by it at the time. Like, um, because I had no idea what was coming. I think, you know, I think if you watched it at a certain time, you approach it in a very different way to watching it now. You know, you approach it now with a bit of awareness, even then, even on the posters, you know, there'd be no image of the villain. There'd be nothing to sort of set you up for what you were going into, really. But yeah, no, yeah, um, uh, very, very, very scary. And um, probably, you know, has been my favorite horror film ever since. Nice. And what do you remember, like, which theater, what exact theater you saw it in or anything like that? Oh, or? no, this was on television. I mean, I, I, over here, um, you have to be 18 to watch <laughs> yeah. Halloween. You actually have to be 18, I believe, over there. You can go in with someone who's 17 or above. So a lot of people get to see it younger in a theater. That wouldn't happen over here. So it was, uh, it was on a television airing one night. Gotcha. And as time went on, I mean, obviously you you came into direct contact with the series through the documentary and then eventually the comics. But do you feel like Halloween played a pretty big part in your life even before then? So in kind of this interim years when you were you know in college and studying film and writing other books and everything, was Halloween always sort of a big presence? Definitely, definitely. Um, 
films there's a lot of films from that sort of time period that I really like but as I grew older I sort of lost my appreciation for them a little bit I enjoyed them but more as a nostalgia trip whereas Halloween I found as I, as I got older I found there were new ways to appreciate it there was more going on in there and it sort of became a film I studied when I was at university I wrote a paper on it there um, I met people who when I was traveling were making Halloween fan films which in the late 90s I thought was the most insane idea ever I'm like really people are doing this now okay we're here but I thought that was fascinating um and then the convention just sounded like a really interesting thing as well. So me and some friends, we were actually going to do a road trip. We were going to go down and finish their one Halloween, and that just seemed like the way to do it, really. And we got in touch. Um, and along the way, I got asked if I'd you know, be interested in filming it, mainly to document it for just for the people putting mm-hmm. on the thing at the time didn't end up doing that with it because as the guest list grew, it just seemed obvious we could do a whole lot more with it. It seemed, you know, we can actually do something, we can get into things a little bit deeper here. There were more and more guests being announced, so then I just suggested, what if we try and actually make a documentary out of this? What if we actually try and tell the story of the film series, incorporate it with, you know, the impact it's got on fans' lives and so on? And we sort of all took it from there together as a group, really. And it sort of evolved from that. And we didn't think... As we were making, you know, there's the possibility maybe they'll use this on the 15th release of Halloween 4. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can <laughs> yeah. pitch it, you know, to use as a special feature or something like that. And it got a bit more traction, a bit more interest to the point where it became a standalone release, really. Which is, a, which is an interesting, interesting, yeah, surprise, put it mildly. And, and w- when you talk about... Um for you the Halloween being different from other horror movies and you felt like there were different ways of understanding it and interpreting it. What to you makes it that way? What makes Michael Myers such an interesting killer to you as opposed to, um, yeah. And you know, obviously there, there are lesser sequels in the Halloween series as well, but just talking about that right. first one. Yeah. What make what makes him stand out for you as, as an adult? Look at it this way, I guess. Um, we're told that it's essentially a non character. There's nothing there. How you know if it's nothing? How come you have essentially so many people online arguing about what that nothing is? I find that really interesting. <laughs> no one can come to an agreement on who or what the character is, even though it's not you know it's never portrayed as anything complex. That's a, you know I find that very very interesting. It's um, it's not like there's riches to discover that are actually there. It's because there's this absence. I think you can put your own your own thoughts and your own take into that space and I think that's probably the main reason but also the actual first film is just a very very good film whether you like you know whether you appreciate it as a horror film or not it's just exceptionally well made it's beautifully shot it's a very simple story told perfectly there's nothing you would take out or really add to that film it's um it holds up very very well now I think the only thing it's got against it is that modern tastes often want something a little bit faster paced Mm-hmm. And a lot of Halloween's central qualities have been ripped off since, so they're more familiar now than they were when Halloween originated a lot of those ideas. Definitely. One, and this actually segues into what I want to start off with talking about is um, I love what you said about, oh, it's nothing, but it's nothing that everyone argues about because it's nothing that we can make as complex or simple as we want. So once you started making these Halloween comics and just a note for listeners. Um, if you're just dropping into this episode, maybe go back and listen to (laughs) some of our other Halloween episodes where we go into pretty high detail about, um, what the plot of these comics are. Um, essentially for a while they were considered the 
canonical continuation of the series. And and I, I don't even know if continuation is the right word because they take place before Halloween starts. They take place in between all the movies. Um, they take place within the Halloween eight, uh, Halloween 2 H.O. Resurrection universe, but also um, make references to the, the kind of disregarded four, five, and six sequels. Um, so just, yeah, just some quick context for listeners. But Steph, so go, when when you were um, approached to uh, write these for Devil's Due Publishing, or I guess you started with One Good Scare, which wasn't Devil's Due, but when when you started creating your own Halloween universe, what angle did you tackle it from? Like, how was it from just your take on Michael Myers? Or I guess when we talk about arguing about nothing, what what is the nothing to you? Like, what was your overall your overarching theme um, before you went into this? I um I thought about how scared I felt when I watched it as a child, and I wanted to capture that. Mm-hmm. There, there's when you again, when you watch things as a child, like um, you add a lot that's not there, and there's a real. It feels a lot more real what's happening on that screen. There's less of a disassociation between you and what you're watching. Uh, there's more of a sense of being there as part of that, and that sense of fear and that sort of nightmarish, relentless thing that keeps coming. I think that's the, that's my main take. Where this thing keeps coming, it's uh, everyone's got some version or variation of that in the nightmares. That's, it just keeps coming relentlessly. You try and hurt it, and it just maybe will slow it down for a minute, but it keeps coming. Your legs slow down, all those, all those typical things that you have in nightmares, and it sort of embodies that. And it was stories that were based around that, mixed with the serial killer aspect, which you don't really see after the first two movies, mm-hmm. um, because we switched to slasher. And there is, I think there is a shift. There's a shift between what those two are. And I think that's with it being a product of the late 70s. There's that sense of that evil serial killer aspect to it that isn't in the later ones. Because he's much more of a creeper as well in that original film. Much more unpredictable because you don't know what's coming, but there's much more patient. Before he becomes an iconic character, we're watching an unknown murderer, really. It's a very different approach in that film. Mm-hmm. You've got that, and then you've got the supernatural side. Now, you think that Loomis being um, the psychiatrist would be the guy who's telling you and giving you the gateway to the psychological (laughs) aspects of it and the scientific sort of, well, not scientific, but the more real-world explanations Mm -hmm. for the character. And yet he's the one who's doing completely the opposite, which I think is brilliant. I think that's that's quite genius with the film, really. They kind of do that again as well in Halloween 3, don't they? You know, with Dr. Chalice. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Colonel Cochran calls him out on the uh, appreciation of science over magic and so on. Yeah, it's it's funny because uh, my this one of the someone we had on the podcast recently he he was joking about how in the real world Doctor Loomis would be like the worst psychiatrist alive because because he just believes in evil he doesn't want to analyze yeah, brain patterns or anything archaic archaic yeah. completely in the way he speaks he talks in like these really vague mythical terms <laughs> yeah. there's nothing concrete there's no scientific aspect to it he is throwing it all out of the window because of this kid that's dead at a wall that, that's fascinating stuff the vagueness of it is something I like as well that's something I wanted to keep in the comics a bit more of a unknown quantity to the shape really um, the other thing I wanted to do as well before I wrote One Good Scare, the last bit of uh, Myers-related media that we had, because there wasn't all the supporting media that we get now, there wasn't mm-hmm. the merchandise to the extent there is now. I think you got like one or two pieces, like you know, you got the Spencer's doll, didn't you, for example, or the uh, <laughs> or the um, the blockbuster the snow globe movies. or something. Yeah, the, yeah all these that's exactly things. the one. And that's exactly the thing I was thinking of. Just very small little trinkety kind of items that are very cool because of the fact that they existed when there was nothing like that. So, oh wow! But now it's very commonplace. But the last bit of Myers Media you had was Resurrection. And yeah, it's hard to sort of see that take of the character in that really, really scary way. 
Yeah. Well, and for me, for me, I had to have some sense of what I was scared of, and that certainly wasn't it. Yeah. Well, and something I, I do appreciate about the comics, though, is that you could have easily, if you wanted to, have disregarded Resurrection or even some of the you know, the bloodline elements of Halloween two, some of the stuff that gets a little more complicated and maybe not as in line with the original. But what I love about the comics is you, you actually do reference all those and you recognize those as happening. I think so. I think the popular thing to do with stories nowadays is just to ignore everything. And your comics actually like the, in uh 30 years of terror, you know, we have, we see Laurie in the mental institution where she is in resurrection. Like the Phil, it fully, I feel like your comics still find good things about, even the lower points of the movies, which I really appreciate. It's it's a tricky one because, like, when we started, <clears throat> obviously four, five, and six have been dropped from continuity. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have done that myself. Um, although for me, I personally, as a viewer, I actually prefer that. But if I was, you know, if I was writing it at that point, I'd, I, I don't believe really disqualifying anybody else's previous work. Mm-hmm. Whether I like it or not, I don't think that that's for me to judge. There's a lot of people out there who really love those films, so it doesn't really matter as such as what my opinion is in there. But they were already at that point excluded from it, so I, I was, you know, I was personally alright with that because it gave you there was a lot of space there to fill stories in. It was it just seemed really interesting because it left this open space where he was out there, which I think is really good. That it you can do more with that sort of mythical urban legend aspect of the character make him a little bit scary something that goes on you know children's whispers at school around mm-hmm. halloween that sort of creepiness that you can sort of tap into which i think is very sort of much more into the sort of the, the boogeyman aspect of it i'm even saying in that horrible american way now aren't i but i guess i'm doomed now <laughs> um, but yeah that's that's sort of what you know we really wanted to get to away from away from what resurrection was presenting really i don't really think I wanted to do more with where that was going. Uh, well, I don't think it was going in. I just think it was a take in that. And again, it's, uh, people liked it. So, you know, fair play. It's not for me to say it didn't happen. Um, we just don't really acknowledge much of it outside of Laurie dying, really. Um, because that's the main narrative takeaway from it. The rest, it doesn't, you know, you can ignore that or you can acknowledge it and it makes no difference to the story. Yeah, because when we begin One Good Scare, which is the um, the first, not, not first in chronology, but the first comic written for your yeah. Halloween universe that Lindsay, um, for those of you who haven't read one good scare and you should, if you haven't, um, Lindsay Wallace, a very troubled Lindsay Wallace shows up at Smith's Grove where Dr. Loomis's son, David is now a doctor and, and they develop a relationship and Lindsay, cause Lindsay references in that, that Laurie Strode has died. So that's, so I guess one good scare would take place. I guess the latest in the chronology, if we're, if we're going off of that timeline, right? Yeah, yeah. From what came out, yeah. I mean, we were gonna we were gonna pick up from that. Nice. And was that always from that were established in the others? Was that that. was that always the plan? Um, uh, Well, actually, so yeah, let's talk about like the sort of expansiveness of the series. When you did one good scare, which was um, at that point like a one shot for uh, for the convention, did you know that you? Did you have everything planned out? Did you know where you were going to take it? Or were you just looking at it like, okay, if I get to do this one thing, that's cool. Like, what was your, your headspace like back then? It definitely wasn't planned out to the extent that it became, you know, I'd be lying if I said it was, or if I had any idea of the scope of that at that point. That was that definitely wasn't there. I did, however, have like it planned. It would either be a standalone or it could work as the first issue of miniseries nice and so there's always so you always had um you knew you wanted to do more with it but you didn't necessarily yes. have um the whole whole you know however many arc thing plotted out and once you oh. once you did start to you know once you realized oh you could really 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 expand it 
how, I mean, just physically, how did you plot everything out? I mean, did you have like post-its on the walls or like how everything was connected or was some of it just made up as you, as you went along? I do far too much internally. Yeah. Um, I like to throw everything in the story and organize it and see how it shapes the more that comes in there because if it's all being sorted in my head at once, I'm sort of seeing what connects to other elements. So if I'm thinking of a story that's 10 ahead, roughly, I might see something and I'm like, hang on a minute, this connects very well with what's here and get that bigger picture that way. Probably too much, but then you have to start noting it down because you start losing you start losing a lot of the individual scenes that you think of. Your bigger block of sort of remaining in your brain, but the smaller bits you sort of lose. So I start writing down different sequences. Sometimes the sequence won't end up one place because it won't suit it, the tone will change, and it'll end up somewhere else. But it started growing, it was quite organic. It wasn't all planned. I mean, at first I had, like I said, the eight-issue series. In between, I started thinking about it, and I started thinking about a couple of other takes on it. But I ended up writing autopsis after that and that was intended as a one shot and they both also had a specific purpose um they were both anniversary comics in a certain way one good scare was for the convention so it's the 25th anniversary one which is why you've got all the obvious iconic things in there, the mm-hmm. Myers house in there it is a character from the original film it does reference the original film and so on it's got an ending similar in tone to the original film possibly darker mm-hmm. um Autopsis was to go with the documentary, so it's again, it's about a reporter investigating, so it's sort of parallel what it was with a little bit. Well, not a reporter, a photographer, I should say. So that was still intended as a one off, but there was things that was popping in there that I thought, there's something I can do with this as an image here that makes sense, and I'd pop that in there. So you've got like the three kills of the uh, three victims that he sees. One of them I had an idea exactly how it would play into it, and another I didn't. From there, I started thinking about a different story completely, which was under a different title. That was. Um, I came to realise if we if we came out with the comics, we'd need to have something that wasn't as uh, fan-dependent as One Good Scare was. One Good Scare, would, well, because it was an anniversary story, called up various elements from the history. I thought it would be better if we actually got the comics out there for something. Hey, I don't know anything about Halloween. What's this? And you can just pick it up and you can read it. And this is what became Night Dance. Um, it was first a story called Blackout. That was the rough title for it. So I was planning through it. Mm. And it would have had like that blackout in it in the fa- in the finale, with her going so, in the the coffin, getting buried alive in the end. That wasn't always there. Well, it was there. It was there. I knew that that was where she ended up because I knew it had to be the ending of like this sort of feeling of claustrophobia, really. And that's the obvious ending for that. I mean, it's been done before in The Vanishing, but I couldn't do it in the same way. I couldn't tell that story in the same way. But I dropped the blackout idea because it was a little bit too Halloween 4. It also required things to work on a more epic scale for something like that to happen because I still wanted it to be quite small, which is another reason I didn't set it in Haddonfield because everyone knows the history in Haddonfield. Everyone's kind of prepared for this on Halloween. Uh, Russellville, no one's seen this coming. Yeah. So it goes back to that innocence of the first film. So we wanted to, it just wanted to be a portal in. And from there... After that, the logical thing was, well, you need to bring someone back, and then Laurie Strode was the obvious one there. That was the only story to me that needed still telling. I felt that it was closed off in Resurrection. Again, I don't particularly care for how a story was ended in Resurrection. I felt the character deserved better. And uh, something else you do in, in Night Dance, which I love, which plays into this Russellville setting, is if you get the trade paperback, we get a short story at the end called Charlie that's about Charlie Bowles, who... Of course, if you, uh, for anyone who's watched the original Halloween, it's the story told by the 
gravekeeper about the uh, the man over in Russellville who killed his wife and his two girls with a hacksaw. Um, and here you actually connect it to the kind of the the present day Michael like uh, the Michael Myers from seventy eight too. I mean, you have Charlie kind of be cosmically psychically connected to all those um, a lot of the elements that happen in in that movie, which to me was like such an adventurous way to take it. It's more an abstract level than any sort of you know literal psychic connection or anything like that. It's more it's much more dreamy and etheric and also very subjective. The scene that kind of inspired that is a weird one. It's actually from Singing in the Rain. Really. Yes, there's the scene where, um, what's the lead character's name, Don Lockwood, he pitches the big movie scene they're in, it's this massive, like, 15-minute elaborate, wonderful set piece, and he's pitching it to a producer, like, this is the movie we've got to make, and it's this massively elaborate, and we see it all, we see all these set pieces, and at the end, the producer sort of shrugs, like, no, I don't see it, as if it didn't ever happen. So I wanted the same thing to be true in the Charlie story, where he, we see his version of what may or may not have happened, but at the end, we don't actually know if any of that's true, and we're still just as in the dark as when it's cut off. I didn't, I didn't want to actually answer what the grave digger was saying there. But on a thematic level, it's just setting up this idea that things are happening over and over again. The same patterns are happening. There's a bit of a loop almost. And that becomes one of the backbones of all the comics. You're starting to see it kick into place by the last issue of Laurie Strode, which, you know, again, we didn't get it out there, but it's all in there really actually. We, we explicitly state that too you know to a certain extent in there anyway about what is actually happening and it becomes about how can you break that chain almost like a cycle of abuse in a lot of ways and it ties in with the notion of you know halloween being this ritualistic thing you get it in a certain way because the sequels well one they all have the same structure to them they're all very the same story to some extent dressed in a new way that's the nature of a slasher film that's why we watch them i think we want to see, we want to see a new spin on what we know rather than something completely radically new which is why i think people struggle with you know halloween three or something two for example where they really push it outside of what you're going to expect from a slasher film yeah well that's what i was going to ask going to this idea of of you know michael myers being cyclical and these things happening over and over again do you fall into one camp or the other about oh does he have it is he supernatural or for you, is it more just this idea of fate, which could be supernatural or, or it could be literal and realistic. Depends where you go from the film. If you look at the first film, that's where you get the perfect portrayal of the shape where you've got this, he exists in between those two takes. Like we said, you've got the, you know, the science and the magic takes. So you've got the serial killer on one side, this escape lunatic, and the, the piano music also kind of feels more in tune with the 70s serial killer thriller than the later renditions of the theme do. You know, they, they feel more gothic from Halloween to once, but that original mm-hmm. Bourbon's piano feels very off in a really good way. You've got that take, the serial killer on the loose, then you've got the mystical, supernatural, bogeyman character. So the film works because you've got that really weird space in the middle. That's that uncertain feeling where, you know, what are we dealing with here? Mm-hmm. You never really know. At the end, I think it's pretty firm where the films come down on one side of that. Yeah, especially with the that ending. been made. So you lose that there. At that point, you know, at the end of the day, well, yeah, the ending, you know, his presence is over everything. It's this big stain on this town. Just in terms of behaviour, again, we do have to keep these into continuity. Halloween 2. He's walking through glass doors. He's taking six bullets. He's still going. He's shot in the eyes. And he's back again for H2O. He's... The decision for whether he's supernatural or not it has been made for us at this point, I think, whether you like it or not. Um, you can portray it a certain way, but ultimately, if you're not opting for supernatural, 
to some extent you're really really having to write off a lot of crazy things <laughs> yeah i, I, re, I rewatched you know, two you're going into some really bad coincidences and unreal you know unrealistic things if you say that it's not supernatural by the point where our stories are set <laughs> yeah so, but it's it was again it was exploring well what does that actually mean and the sense everything almost works according to a certain plan it's like loomis says he sees this night mm-hmm. he sees this moment you know he's staring at a wall so with charlie going back to that Charlie almost gets a hint of things just by the murderous path that he goes on, by the tapping into like whatever evil is and something. He just gets the slightest sense of something that's bigger than him. This understanding of how everything is, you know, be it fate, be it evil, as a philosoph- as philosophical concept and how it's sort of related to life, I guess, really. And it overwhelms him. He just gets a little glimpse of it and he sees all the strange stuff. And now you put that in context, you've got the shape who sat at a wall stirring of its own volition for 15 years. It gives you kind of an idea of what sort of level of evil you're dealing with. No, I completely agree. Well, because there is, you know, I'm not at all anti-Michael Myers being supernatural, but I think I like the way you say it in that kind of philosophical eloquence as opposed to going full-on cults and thorn. Even though I love, I actually do kind of love 4, 5, and 6, but, um, you know, there's a way to, I think, be supernatural while also being classy and, and thematically relevant well, you've got to do it without giving an explanation i think yes without, without it being plotted without it being plotted you've got to give a sense of it you can acknowledge it and give a sense of it and understand the mechanics of it so your storytelling remains consistent but i don't think you need to state what it is as long as i know what that supernatural aspect is and what i'm writing it as if i can write it without giving you an explanation then i will um, because it maintains the mystique of the character no, exactly. You can't, you can't really come out. And, I mean, I do. I, I think sometimes with the comics, we do come out and state too much, really. But then, even then, you read it, and people misinterpret what you're saying. I'm like, I can't really spell things out anymore. It'll just destroy it. <laughs> yeah. What, do, so, do you think then that? I mean, oh, Charlie. Charlie has this uh, moment in the woods where he thinks he, or he maybe he does. He runs into a uh, another escaped inmate. Yes. And he, and yes. that inmate references Loomis. So is that supposed to be someone who just a. a previous patient of loomis or do you think that's also yeah, a he also the references a different asylum as well that's why i got that's why i got yeah not confused in a bad way but that i was wondering about that i'm like oh is this just charlie making things up and seeing things yeah, or? That's, no that was a deliberate plot scene that one um what's basically happening there is one of the other times we wanted to we went to a loomis comic that's set before halloween that leads up to that point so the ending would be essentially him being given and the transition science to switch to magic and we need to set up that sort of person really there's that sort of and it's about his experience really as a criminal as psychiatrist and learning about the evil that men do and following him through his life four or five different periods with four or five stories so it's not like an ongoing life story it's Mm -hmm. a few key stories like movies that would be about him and the final one would end there but there is one that is taking place concurrent to charlie oh nice final acts so this is different than um, the Sam story that that was published online later on. These would be different. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yes. yeah. I wondered yes. about that because I I reread it. I'm like, wait a minute, because I, I missed that the first time around. I you see it. hints of certain stories there, like for example, the wartime era character. That's who you would see. The um, Elizabeth from Sam would be in there, for example. Things nice. Like that. And a lot of the things are hinted at that are dropped out there are those sort of stories. And it's more about him developing his philosophy of how things are and how that he's brought into conflict when he meets this kid that says nothing. It's yeah. just this image of this kid that stares at him and just looks right in, right inside him and breaks him somehow. 
That's so cool. Well, yeah, because even Loomis references a wife at some point who I don't think we ever get to meet in the comics. And um, yeah, the the his the, the his parents like dying and the the horse is on fire and all these things. Yeah, I, I love all those kernels that you drop about him throughout uh, throughout these other stories that aren't necessarily Loomis centric. It was fun. It was fun. Yeah, uh, and, uh, it'll never see the light of day. But uh, you know, it, it it was developed. It wasn't all written or anything like that. I've got like I had planned it into specific facts about who the characters were, you know, who the villains were, because that was kind of fun. What? Because you also got to be careful there, because you can't have any villains that outdo what comes later. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's the problem with any sort of prequel. You still got to have it that what happens to Loomis on that night is the most important thing in his world. So it can't be something that overstates that unless it's different, unless it's playing in something different. So those considerations are in there. And how can you make it dramatic when you've already seen the most important part of his life, things like that. Definitely. When- so, but you've also got the supporting cast that impacts as well. So you bring them into it more as well. And his changing as a character, how it impacts them. So you can show it that way as well. Yeah, I was going to say, because um, we eventually get to 30 Years of Terror, which is, it's funny because I feel like for years, myself included, people have been saying, oh, well, they should they should make the Halloween universe into some kind of horror anthology series. That would be really cool. And I'm like, yeah, they did that already. <laughs> it's in 30 Years of Terror. Um, which, how many stories are in that? Five, five or six? Five. Five, right? And they're all, what I love about that is, yeah, we have a Loomis, uh, you know, um, we have a Loomis Marion story, which is a little bit more tied directly to the series. But then we also get a vignette about um, the Mackenzies, who are just the older couple who we hear about at the end of Halloween. You go to the Mackenzie's house. We yeah. get to see how that happened. We get to see an older Tommy Doyle um, uh, reading Tarantula Man, which is a comic that very briefly gets referenced in, uh, in Halloween. Um, and then we have, of course, like I mentioned before, the visiting hours, which references resurrection. I love how... I felt like with 30 years of terror, you were really trying to expand this universe and just taking these little nuggets of information and, and making them into actually compelling stories. Something we made up um, completely, like for example, the Loomis story, because you've got that space to fill. Because that's like what, between, that's like after each two hours, or no, before, before each show, I guess. It's before, 89, before. 89, right? I think it takes place in? 89, yeah, when Halloween 5 should have taken place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, guys. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. A few Halloween 5 fans weren't happy about that. But I like <laughs> Halloween 5. I'm one of those people. Um, with, with, with some of them, you've got to look at a couple of things. We had to think of it as an anniversary, again, mm-hmm. because of the of in the title. And what are these things going to do going forward? How What are they actually saying about the past and what are they sort of saying going forward? So there's those two things in each one. So with the first one, Trick or Treat, we're actually, as well as giving you an alternate sequel to the other five minutes that took place after Halloween, the other story thread that almost takes place at the same time as the beginning of Halloween 2. It's just before because we see him look in the window and he looks at them. We're showing a couple of things that the shape as as he is in our comic doesn't forget anything. Mm, Yeah. Their hospitality, they let in the little kids running from him, that's remembered. By the time we're writing the stories with the shape in the comics, 2003 onwards, Laurie's dead, and what you've got really is a petulant child in the shape in a certain way. If evil's carrying on from that, it's got everything it wanted that we're used to it wanting. What's it going to do now? So there's there's a a growing darkness there, a growing anger, and it's going back to that notion of scaring. Mm -hmm. And it's on 
track by the end of things to be scaring the whole town. You know, the atrocities to be getting to this level where it's mythical. Something to be absolutely, you know, that everyone's terrified of. When Halloween comes, people are terrified. The doors are locked. People are terrified. And there has to be something that warrants that. That does Because in, in the real world, you could easily deal with that. You'd have police out. You'd have yeah. whatever you needed to be there. But you have to think of something that almost works on a fairy tale level as well. So it's escal- you know, I wanted to deal with that escalating rather than repeating the same story. We are sort of expanding on it like it re- history is repeating itself, but it's growing. It's like a ripple going outwards, which adds a bit more of an impending scale every time. But uh, it's tricky doing that again without going into the Halloween 4 action territory that I didn't want to do. And again, that's got its audience as well, but that's too far away from the sort of creepy take we were going for. Because again, I wanted to maintain the serial killer the sort of psychosexual aspects you see in the first two films that are really uncomfortable that you don't see after those first two films you had mentioned before and it's funny because obviously there are some sexual things uh that happen in your comics and i guess you can feel one way or the other about them but yeah i've always looked at it like when people say oh well there's not this sexual element to michael myers i'm like well no he you know he saw his sister his 16 year old sister um naked and killed her and he spies on Annie naked and kills her. I think there is this deviant quality to Michael Myers that, yeah, we really do forget about as the, the films go on. I mean, a lot of it is just the sexism of the films themselves, in a way. <laughs> not, really, not so much with Halloween, because I don't think Halloween's particularly guilty of yeah. that, but I think more of the spin-offs. Mm-hmm. Um, you sort of imitators where it's the long shower shots just because it's, for some, you know, the belief that it will put more people in seats that sort of you know early 80s thinking there um but with with michael as a character he's he's very very voyeuristic he's certainly uncomfortable around sex he looks at the bed before he stabs his sister you know the camera specifically mm-hmm. turns and looks at that unmade bed before he stabs her like you said he watches annie get changed he watches bob and linda the whole time before he does anything you know he stares at linda he's wearing the sheet over while he looks at her because he's interested in creeping out this girl first rather than killing her he doesn't do that Bob. he just kills him as soon as He's uncovered. The scene in Halloween 2, the hot tub. Yeah. That's very much an example of that. Again, and you don't see anything really like that after those first two films. It, you know, Zombie goes some of that way with that. But again, it's done differently. It's more in the tone of his movies. It's not as it needs to be expected there in a certain way. Whereas in 1 and 2, you've got these... The America that's presented in Halloween 1 and 2 is very, very wholesome. So even the slightest bit of that is really, really creepy. And also the breathing in the first film particularly... Mm-hmm. The really excitable breathing, like the breathing when he's uh, smashing through the uh, closet door. Yeah, and you hear him kind of grunting almost. It's, he's got this like yeah. Yeah, thing with it too, this, these vocalizations. He's very, very excited under that mask and it's really horrible. Yeah, and it makes sense that that would get, like you said, worse and escalate by the time we get to something like Night Dance, right? Where his, yeah, he's, yes. his, his crimes are a little bit more violent. They are a little bit more graphic. Because, yeah, I think it's probably been, been building and building over the years. It, it's funny, uh, going back to Trick or Treat really quick, I love what you said about how Michael Myers doesn't forget. And I, I always think of, oh, if I was in that universe of Haddonfield, it's not a thing where you can just see Michael Myers and then get away from him and be, and be done with him. Like, if you help, like, the McKenzie's, they pay for it, even though they they yeah it's for something really I small like that i always like that idea of him if you just die one day you were going in the woods and you just saw this figure stirring at you through the trees that's it yeah. maybe not that day <laughs> but one day but that really horrible i've seen it you know that, that that it's out there and you see him and that's everything it's really unsettling to me and when he hurts the you know he puts the 
there's the razor blades in the candy, but it looks like it's the woman because who's going to actually believe her? Because the other thing that Haddonfield's very good at is hushing it up, as we see. Mm-hmm. They're in absolute denial of it to a certain extent. There's those that acknowledge it, but there's this whole let's carry on, let's let's just put that happy surface over everything, and it's fading. It's the cracks are coming through. You can see the rock coming through as we progress. But with with that one particularly, it's showing one that he's vengeful, but he's also he's a kid. He's he likes doing these pranks, and it might seem a little elaborate for him to do that. He might seem more direct in his approach. But look at the murder of the nurse in Halloween Two, Nurse Alves. Oh that's yeah, insanely elaborate. <laughs> yeah, the IV. That's, that's you know that's a very laid back serial killer. Okay, I'm just going to put you under now, and he ties her up. He's you know he wires her up. He's even got it in, inserted correctly and it's uh we don't we don't think about that aspect of it there's that playfulness he displays all of the bodies he likes scaring he very much enjoys willie now take anyway he enjoys scaring yeah that's very much a pleasure that he takes part in. to me that that differentiates him from Voorhees. Voorhees will just kill you freddie freddie enjoys the scaring but i think for me michael is a trick-or-treater at heart he's an evil mm. evil trick-or-treater oh that's creepy i treat it a little bit like that because the clown again, it's it's adding that sort of little bit more importance to him being dressed as a clown the first time round. Not too much more, but it fits in that sort of aspect of it. Yeah, definitely. It, it's a funny. Bit of a prankster. It's funny because something I um I think about a lot is in the trade of night dance. You get to see all these. Uh, these kids drawings that Michael has made, which you see a couple right. of them in the actual story, but you, in the, if you get the night dance trade, you see like all of them in the, in the beginning. And I was rewatching Halloween two last night and I completely forgot. He makes one of those very same drawings at the elementary school. So that goes back to, I'm like, Oh man, that, that drawing. I mean, I thought, he, I thought he'd made it when I watched it, but I, I believe it's actually the intended to be another child's drawing that he's found. But I, I prefer not to see it that way. I find it really creepy that we're still. Oh, still interesting. You know, but for me, my take is the same as what you described there. I think that's the scene you can take. You know, I always took it differently to intent, to whatever the intent possibly was. That he was the one who drew um, it, yeah. Yeah, and I've always took it that way for me when I watch it. Still, that's how it is. And in, in the comics, we take it that way. We absolutely take it that way because it's creepy. It's fun. Yeah. And it allows us to do a little bit more with him. It's an extension of that. And you see, it's a really good way of expressing something horrible through these childlike drawings like that are really quite twisted that he's done really disturbing images done in that style Man. for again there's that level of fun there and it's he, he's very much it shows also there is a thought process going into how the bodies end up and how he you know how he positions things it's, and with the uh yeah like you said with the mckenzie's the way he gets his revenge is he uh he comes back years and years later after uh the father mckenzie is, is dead and he puts these razor blades in Mrs. McKenzie's candy she's giving out, which means she's probably sitting in a jail cell somewhere now. But uh, um, yeah, the escalation again to him wanting to scare you know the kid that scares the town. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, going to, it's going to that sort of level without his you know main intended victim. He's still doing what he's doing, but it's it's more vindictive, and he's, you know it's like a you know you you people will be scared of me. Well, and uh, um, the razor blade and the candy and the apple, I guess, is. Uh, we'd see that in Halloween too with that little pirate yes. kid. And so do you think Michael was responsible for that razor blade? Also the one that we see in Halloween too? Probably not. He, he was a busy on that night. Yeah. <laughs> he had other yeah. stuff. He had other he, stuff. He though. already had a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah. He had a lot to do. Yeah. Um, cool. And so, yeah, let's move on to some of the other stories in, um, in 30 years of terror. Um, we talked a little yes. bit about the Loomis so one. Visiting hours, wasn't there? You mentioned 
Yeah, visiting hours, which is we yeah, like you said, we see it's post H two O. We see Laurie in um in the psychiatric facility. Um, and the the idea being that she can't even have memories of what could have been without Michael Myers invading them. Um, yeah, what yeah, where did that come from? I feel like that's like actually a much more cerebral story than we're used to seeing in horror comics. Yeah, and it's it's the themes that again this sort of idea of eternal recurrence mm-hmm. this would always happen to her whatever she did that day whatever you know whatever course of action you know the speech from halloween the fate yeah whatever course of action you know fate never changes and that's exactly what's happening there it's just taking that sort of background dialogue that probably was never meant to mean anything other than add this sort of richness to it it plays out quite well when you look at that. Any, you know, there's no because because it always seems like this really bad coincidence that she, when you add the sister twist in, she's dropping the key off on the day mm-hmm. that he's there. It's fine in the original story when she's just a person who just happens to do it. That's just really bad luck. But for her to be his sister as well is like inconceivably bad luck, <laughs> and it, it really throws a spanner in the realism of it. So with the way we're doing it, we're sort of looking at the idea that things always are going to happen a certain way for it on that level really and we're seeing that but that's also the very definition of hopelessness as well the evil that you're up against there's nothing she could have done it's always going to play out this way whatever decision she made she's still going to lose her friends it's still going to come for her and she's come to to peace with this at that point because the character's been through tons i think it's kind of in bringing her back for resurrection they've done something a little cruel to the character as well as putting her through all these like relentless sufferings with the shave they've made her into a murderer of an innocent man and uh when you actually think about that it's cool as a plot twist but when you start thinking about it on a character level i'm like you know that's a lot to put a character through and it's kind of unfair yeah so i just wanted to have some sort of as well as it being a dark story where she knows it's going to only end one way it just puts more of a sense of acceptance to it and understanding i think a little, little bit of peace she gets that there's nothing she can do even if she got away now or you know there'd be let's say she'd survived her whole life until this point because if you notice in those three stories one of them is, is like straight away another one's a few years later she's going further and further into her life yet it still intrudes it's almost like if she'd carried on that long it would still intrude mm-hmm. that's when we see like 1987 annie in there with the um curly hair yeah i love that detail even even and she has her own kid who looks kind of he has kind of an 80s haircut a little bit too yeah i like how it looks looks time period wise a little bit different yeah so that's that's i mean that's what we were trying to do with that really just put a little more blessing to that character's exit but also set up the themes and also set up the story we would be telling in the first death of laurie strobe because that doesn't play that you guys you know it's been nicer lately and in wisconsin you never quite know when winter is going to be in but it's been nice for like four days in a row and i'm like if sunnier days are coming it's time to fuel up and so i'm going back to my factor meals that no prep no mess i want to hit my weight goals before it's time to hit that beach you've got options like calorie smart protein plus keto Factor has these fresh, never frozen meals, dietitian approved guys. And here's the big thing for me, keeping out of the kitchen as much as possible, two minutes and these meals are ready. So it doesn't matter how busy you are, you've always got time. So treat yourself. They have 35 different meals to pick from, 60 add-ons to choose every week. You're always going to have new stuff to try. Have it whenever you want. It's effortless, guys. So if you'd like to try it yourself, head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50 to get 50% off your first box. Plus, 20% off your next month. That's code badmovies50 at factormeals.com slash badmovies50 to get 50% off of your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, and I, and it, it just for me it, it takes something. It takes a movie that, like you said, I mean there are people who like it. I'm not so much a fan of Resurrection. Just has it, it just tonally puts a little bit more of a suiting coda to that that character on there. Um, and then and then we, yeah we talked about the uh, we talked about the repetition compulsion, the Loomis story where we see Michael really screwing with him in in '89. One thing I did. This is just a total dumb plot question i wanted to ask do you think that dog they find dies or because it's still kind of alive when, when they find it do you think they they save it or is that dog a goner oh oh as a human being i'd like to say it's alive <laughs> as a bastard of a writer it's probably passed on i would imagine so too yeah it looked like uh, it was that's, that's all again an ongoing sort of plot thread that would have led to an upcoming story which is Laurie's away at this time. Michael knows she's out there. He's just passing his time. He's tormenting the person who thinks he's saved Laurie. Yeah. So That's you... the big joke behind it. Loomis feels that he's, in changing Laurie's identity, possibly, possibly got a small chance of saving her. In, in his high, he knows he's not even outside this land. But he's done that. So in the meantime, it's again, this is a cat playing with a mouse at mm-hmm. this point, just having far too much fun with it. He's just tormenting and breaking down Loomis with what apparently are random victims but again those victims come into play in another story the uh, teacher the, nice. uh, Miss Haddonfield for example they would come into play later on oh the Miss, Miss Haddonfield the, the, the uh, beauty queen yes yeah, yeah. all of the, the, the they didn't exist in complete isolation these murders they're not completely random there's, there's some sort of thinking behind them all um, but it's, this, it's very much about the whole story is about the humiliation of Loomis which is why at the end he's just there's just all these pins in the map it's like well you know he could be anywhere and he's just mocking like i'll do what i want really it's um he's been in his house as well you know while he's sleeping he's walked around that's why the mask is tilted while loomis and marion have been sleeping the shape's been in the house and walked around them yeah well that, and it's funny too because you know h2o presents it oh he he broke into marion's house and or loomis's old house and finds this file in carrie tate but the idea is that oh he's been Maybe he didn't know Carrie Tate specifically, but Michael has known that Laurie's been alive for quite a while. Then, like, it's not it's not been as as big a secret as Loomis thought it was. The way I always looked at it, um, if he just wanted some other information that was in there, that's just the one that they found that realized it was that because that's the one file he's going to look. And also, again, he's kind of going to want him to know. He's going to want Marion to know a little bit. I would imagine. Yeah, that's that's part again, of his. Gonna, it's, it's tricky because he doesn't always line up perfectly. Um, and in that case, if it was like a minor sort of shift in the scene that doesn't quite line up, I'd go for the story up for the accuracy, to be honest. Yeah, and that's fine. You know, we have to fudge you it. Because they do, it, they do it all the time in the films. Like, all the time they don't. You know, <laughs> they, if something doesn't work for them that happened in a previous film, yeah, we'll, we'll, we won't worry about that. We'll, we'll just do it anyway. There's, there's no... There's, there's no loyalty to previous installments in Halloween. We all know this. Oh, totally. We... I would I would try and be as much as possible, but if it was something like a minor thing that didn't quite line up, then yeah, I'd go for the story. <laughs> well, even, even watch, rewatch, and I love Halloween too. I adore that movie, but even rewatching it last night, I always forget 
how much damage Michael has inflicted on him between the fire and the getting shot in the head twice with the eyes and the fact that Loomis has already shot him six times, he gets shot five more times. I mean, I mean, get, and I feel like even with even if you're going off of Halloween Four's logic, oh, well, he survived in a coma. I'm like, man, he is surviving a lot, <laughs> even even to be in a coma. And why are his eyes? Seven roof core things. Yeah, it's so it's, yeah. So I, I think you're granted a little bit of uh, of artistic freedom there. Um, and with uh, Tommy and the Boogeyman, uh, or um. That's the wrong title again. That's why it should be Tommy's Web. But uh, oh wait, so it is because in my in my copy it says Tommy and the Boogeyman, but that was just a misprint then. Yeah, yeah, they had another <laughs> title. There was they had the wrong title first. I said the right title, and then this title was there that I don't know where it came from. So uh, oh, that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. One- yeah, and I think they spelled repetition compulsion wrong. I might be wrong. Oh really? Oh, I'll have to I'll have to check. I do know in my in my night dance trade, uh, there's like a repeated last page for charlie or something you have to read it a little bit out of order <laughs> charlie charlie in night dance is the wrong draft yeah um, what happened there was they printed some test pages because we were just testing out the backdrop would look with you know with the story over it because it's not on a white paper it's got like the uh, hacksaw background that peter fielding did so we sent some tests over to say how would this look do you think how would this look printed because we were doing it ourselves and um, somehow they printed completely the wrong draft, so it's got all my typos, and it's too violent that version. I think it's very, Cause very always, violent. Because I, <laughs> yeah. I always write my, I always write the most violent version first, and then I cut back on it. Yeah. So I put it. I always do it that way. Um, it's full of typos as well. It's just the wrong version of it, and there's a few sort of plot elements that I didn't want in, some that I did want in, and a few things that needed tweaking. So it's completely the wrong version. Uh, I mean, the general sense of the story is correct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's well, say it's. Um, a draft away we're we're only talking like a 20 percent difference if that but still yeah i know it can be frustrating to see as very a writer frustrating, yeah. <laughs> very frustrating very frustrating um, uh, yeah yeah the, that was that was angry phone call day i think yeah yeah i feel like all writers have uh, have a angry moment like that <laughs> yeah. well we'll call we'll call Tom, we will call call it tommy's web then um and it's funny because tommy being such a major character i feel like in other series we just get a little bit of a glimpse of him in this, and I'm assuming he would, you know, there was the Mark of Thorns, some other comics that unfortunately didn't get to come out. I feel like he would have popped up in those, but I love how in this it's just this kind of EC Comics throwback almost, you know, to, to these really violent like Tales from the Crypt comics. Yeah, it's not what would have been how, you know, what would have what he would have actually had in 1978. It's a little bit too strong a horror comic, but at the end of the day, <laughs> yeah. it would have released again in 1978. Um, I wanted it to be something that was like, whoa, quite jarring something that paralleled again the same sort of creepy type of killer that the shape was mm-hmm. so that's why again he's targeting girls on the way home to school it's, it's it's a mirror image of what tommy's seeing with the shape it's supposed to be yeah the same thing and then we get um, and then the the end jarring uh, for him yeah yeah then at the end we get we see that he has been working on some michael myers comics also which i'm, I'm assuming yes. would have come into play down the line yeah. they would they would that would have been our comics take on thorn continuity slightly different to the one in the film mm-hmm. because if you think about it like i mean i don't envy dan farrens he was stuck with quite the task of the halloween five yeah here's these things you must make sense of them somehow we haven't done but have a go so he <laughs> had he had that he had that to deal with uh but with it being a comic we did it differently it was more of a tommy psychological exploration through a comic book nice but, Doing it differently as well allowed us to play with characters like 
Rachel a bit more, for example, than Tina. Because uh, I think Tina is an underrated character, contrary to what most people actually think. <laughs> because I know that she's not for everyone, but she is the character. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's an actual recognizable personality there, and that's quite the anomaly in these kind of films. So yeah, that's that, true. That alone means people, I think, should be reconsidering her. At least they bothered with her. At least you know, the actress brought something through in that. And I know it doesn't always go down with everyone. She's not always popular, but I think. I would much rather someone like <laughs> Tina than, for example, Spitz, for example, who's just there. Because <laughs> we spend an awful lot of time and tell me anything about him other than his you know, appreciation of contraception. There's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing. So at least with Tina, at least you can have an opinion to her and you can spend time and get him. Yeah, with Spitz, I, f- I remember the condom thing and I remember that goofy, spooky walk he does when we first meet, when he comes out of the liquor store and that's kind of it. And I've seen that movie many <laughs> Many times before. And he also thinks it's really cool to dress up as the guy who actually murdered a load of people in the town <laughs> yeah, the year before. Yeah. The year before. So <laughs> I, I, I'm not connecting with this guy. That's In fact, Halloween 5's got another scene as well that's not in the original two, because most of the stuff in the comics we try to draw from the original two. Mm-hmm. Always try to draw from th- those two films. The behaviours are from there. So, for example, the beginning of Night Dance where you've got Abby and she's bleeding out. Oh, yeah. Again, I've read this, you know, Michael wouldn't do that. Well, he did. Um, she's there, she's bleeding out, and she's in the room, and she's, you know, she's tied up while her boyfriend's being killed off screen. But if you think, again, go back to Nurse Alice, he's let her bleed out on this, tied to a gurney quite elaborately. Would he leave apples in a razor blade? I mean, sorry, would he leave apples in a razor blade? Would he leave <laughs> razor blades in an apple? Um, well, he seems to have a very good time sort of scratching the hood of Mikey's car at the beginning of Halloween 5. There is that playful maliciousness mm-hmm. that's there. And again, why display the bodies? Why? Because at the end of Halloween, he beckons Laurie to come to him with flashing the light on and off. Oh, All of the yeah, other that's victims, right. He goes to them. But, you know, because obviously she's what he's sort of targeting at this point. All of the others, he's hunted them down. But she's seen him. So he's encouraging that. He's like, he's set up something for her to see. He doesn't kill her as soon as she enters the house. He waits till she's seen all of those bodies. It's almost important for him that she sees that. Otherwise, he could have killed her as soon as she entered that place. Or he could have gone over there. We've seen this. He's been close to her as many times throughout that film. But she's all, he's only disappeared at the point where he has seen her looking back. They've had eye contact. We just don't see the eyes. I was going to say, why do you, why do you think that people have a short memory with that kind of thing uh because i feel like it, yeah you're right people sequels, always do like that. yeah because it's not it's not really present in the sequels from halloween 4 onwards michael there's definitely a jason Voorhees influence yeah, he's a terminator he's definitely, he's, he is he is and again the creepier unsettling stuff the watching of you know him being a voyeur that's also one too impatient for those kind of films which want more kills and more action so we lose we lose the more unsettling aspects to instead the best we've got is violence, and that's not. Again, I'm not dismissing that. I think it's. I think it's fine. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not trying to say, you know, but it's to me the creepiness is in those first two films, and we we don't get that again after that. We really don't. Uh, possibly in, again, five. As much as five is a very problematic as a, as a film as a whole, I can't vouch for it. <laughs> to be quite blunt, I can't. Uh, it, it doesn't work. But there's lots and lots of scenes in that film that I think are really interesting. Not always great, but interesting and worthy of your time because there's some sort of attempt to do something there. The scene with Jamie crawling in a coffin, that's really, really dark. It's a nine-year-old girl crawling in a coffin to die with the body of her adopted sister opposite her already and the dead dog, and she's crawling in a coffin to die. That's really, really pushing what... 
would you really get away with doing that now? I think it was made where in the 80s you just made these films and didn't have this, what are they doing here? Mm-hmm. I think it seemed like quite shocking by comparison. Yeah, it's... I think so anyway. It's quite, it's quite, if you actually start to break it down. But it works again. It's, it's more of that fairy tale where, you know, the big bad wolf thing again, which is prevalent through all Halloween. But we've, going back to what you were saying, we've, we've lost something from those first two films so i I mean i tried to i certainly tried to do it in the comics it's funny though because like you said you know i have read some comments or whatever about the comics being that violent but it's like weird because a have you seen the sequels and also like like you said i mean in halloween 2 we're seeing him inject hypodermic needles into people's eyeballs and burn them alive in hot tubs like when has michael myers not been not been violent like that it's funny to me the funny thing is, we get more of that now because at the time, one of the criticisms was I wasn't killing enough people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, oh, I've read all of this comic, and Michael's just killed someone on page eleven. I'm like, you had to wait ten pages without a murder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> when also, too, you, it's you're you know once again you're respecting a timeline that's in a series of films that's already in place. If he's killing so so many people so obviously in front of others, then it kind of messes right. with the fact that he's supposed to have been not heard from for however many years, right? Like th- yes. they have to be done in ways where we can believe it's either someone else doing it. Or like you said, it's people just want like the cop and night dance want to be. You also need to have a reason for that because we've just been establishing there that he's quite showy off. So why would he be staying in? So the way we sort of work with that in the comic is going back to what I said about him screwing with Loomis. Yeah. So in a way doing these things, knowing that only Loomis knows full well it's him, there's a, that, that pleasure there in slowly chipping him down and scaring him. So there's a reason almost for Michael to stay hidden. By the time we get to one good scare, that's the point where he's really not afraid of Laurie's gone. Everything's done. He's not afraid of you know, he, he's it's a process of escalation from that point. He is like the mythical buggy. Yeah. Doing it. He does not care. He's leaving quite obvious signs that he's done things like, for example, starting with Lindsay Wallace. It's a statement as much as anything else. No, totally. Well, cause it, it's for everyone to find. That's uh, something he's about. That's it's. I'd never thought of that before. It's interesting that you say that by because by the ending scene of One Good Scare, he he's has no bones about just walking into an asylum and killing people in front of others. Um, yeah, and that's, that's funny. Yeah, Laurie's dead by that point, so he like that's his. He'll never get to experience that again, man. That's that's super freaky. Um, we probably should talk about the first death of Laurie Strode, which uh, tragically, I know we did not get that third issue, which I know so many people are pining for, including myself. Um, but let's talk about it though. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think if anything, like you said, the if if we just took the movies and said we're going to make a, a comic series that goes throughout all the decades of Halloween, yeah, I think the one story people would really want to see is okay, how did Laurie? fake her death or um or how what were the mechanics of that but what i really appreciate is that most of the of that comic and you know just having read two issues it's not necessarily about the logistics of faking her death it's really more about the psychological fallout of of her and and uh and and the town which i i just think that's such a cool angle i mean you could have easily just made it like a murder mystery thing but it, it really does become more about like the the fall how how does a town grieve and how does the town ignore all this horrible stuff that's happened I like morning after stories very much. Yeah, yeah. Because that's where you actually you get to know these characters and the ones that survive. What happens? And that's really interesting. I mean, Brackett's an obvious one straight away. Yeah. Because they take him out to the point where he's to me where he's about to get really really interesting in Halloween Two. What's this guy going to do now? He's lost his daughter. He's going to walk off the movie. Mm-hmm. That's almost a cheat in a way. But on the other hand, on the other hand, Carpenter does that very well in Halloween Two. Lots of characters just walk out of the movie. 
movie that you just walk in and walk out and it somehow works there now yeah. we expect them to have some sort of narrative arc payoff they don't they walk to the next street and they're gone again look at the deputy for example deputy hunt yeah he just disappears in the third act because it's more than once because it's more than you know the reporter though we know what should have happened to him but because there's this you know old robert mundy who's on the screens all, all the way through jamming with people in cars and then he's gone again all these sort of threads that don't and I mean, obviously, he's not a character in the actual narrative directly, but it's almost it's almost this present narration yeah. for the first half. It's re- it feels alive a bit more that we're seeing glimpses of people's lives. You know, not everyone's story has to have an ending that night. It, it, they go on, they do other things. But I want to see what happens next with some of these people, which is where that came through to. And also the PTSD aspect of the character. I like damaged characters. I always have done. I mean, in all of them, every <laughs> one of the stories was starting from that point of view. There's, you know, all the, all of the main characters in all of them, uh, from David Lim, David Lim, downwards, they've got some sort of baggage that they're trying to sort of make peace with. One, and you also, too, did this, once again, I'm, I, I know I keep harping on, but this idea of taking these little things in the movies and making them into really deliberate, excellent character choices. You take the... Um, the woman who's on the other end of the Sally, who's on the other end of the phone when um, right. Alice gets killed. And she, I mean, she's like Laurie's new best friend. And I think, uh, gosh, what a sad story. I mean, she, she's also dealing with the fallout of this too, because she, you know, her friends have gotten killed. And I love how you just take this person that you've, you hear just on the phone for what, not even two minutes in Halloween too. And then she becomes such a, a big presence in, in the first death of Laurie's Jared. Yeah. She's, you know, she's pretty much the co-star of that. <clears throat> I needed someone obviously for Laura to be, to have some sort of friends with her. I didn't want to do her completely isolating herself. I wanted someone to be falling with her, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had an idea for a character that I wanted to use and where they started, which became her anyway, the close. That character, Sally, I had as a character planned originally for the. She was actually one of the earliest characters I came up with because she was actually planned to be a supporting character in the David Loomis arc. Oh, nice. Later on, like at that point. Her friendship with Laurie came later when I was writing Laurie Strode. I realized I wanted to have a friend and I already had this character I wanted to work with and it made perfect sense. And it enhanced both stories to actually bring them together. Yeah, that's so great. That was, that was really good because that, that sequence actually becomes quite key to the comics, the uh, murder at the beginning of Halloween 2. Now, because, you, you know, you, I'm sure you've probably discussed this yourself. One of the things you see often on fan discussions is why does he kill that girl? Yeah, I think I mentioned why? this to you before was uh, on Twitter. Yeah, we've, we've been interacting with a lot of our listeners. And that, yeah, it always comes up. And I mean, and the real answer, right, is like, Carpenter had to put exactly. he had to put had to put more violence in here, and he pounded a case of beer while he wrote this movie. But um, but it, so many of the actual things that fans try and find answers for yeah. in Halloween exist like purely not as narrative decisions, but as production choices. Yeah, exactly. Something works out a certain way, and what people really need is this in-universe rationale for it when there really isn't one <laughs> so you get this dangerous thing though where you're putting an interpretation onto a scene which you know we're guilty of doing on this but it, it worked with that one because I think that's really fascinating because if you look at the original movie everything goes his way right until that last minute mm-hmm. everything goes his way he breaks out of prison he finds especially when you put on you know when, when you start work looking at the sister element so in the second one we're establishing the Halloween rituals of Samhain Sawin Samhain. Yeah, what do you say? Sawin, Sawin Samhain? I've always said Samhain, but I guess it's Sawin, Sawin, Sawin. Well, it's, it is Sawin, I guess, but I think you'd be 
I think it'd be a little churlish to sort of, you know, chastise people <laughs> saying yeah. what he actually looks like and for how Loomis actually tells you it's said. Yeah. So I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong with going with either, to be honest. Um, you know, it, it sounds nothing like it looks. So, but th- those elements come into play in the second one a little bit, even if it's just that bizarre little speech there. We obviously establish his supernatural when he's taking all the damage he is in part two. And the sister thing, you can either accept that it's a really bad coincidence that she was there, or you can sort of look at the it was fated, which mm-hmm. is very subtly supernatural, but plays into what we wanted to do uh, with the actual comics. So with that scene, so how, does, how do you make that work? past you know mrs already has got no interest and then he sees alice and bang it and the only way you can see it is especially with the fact that we see the shape's eyes for the first time really yeah it's weird yeah i don't know if that was on purpose or or you see his eyes a lot more in halloween 2 than halloween 1 yeah i'm I'm, I'm not a fan of it personally but in that shot he looks he looks pretty angry yeah it works it works uh, because you know he's at least you know waltz at least giving you the performance underneath the mask while he's doing it and to me you're actually seeing rage for the only time properly that Mm. Until well, you see it a little bit when he's smashing to get into the wardrobe in the first one, but that's that to me is a moment of weakness for the character. That's a rage kill. That's a fr- that's the first point in that night where he kills out of frustration. There's no planning. It's a mistake. Now, the way that the first film ends is the shape is in control of everything. You know, on a cinematic level, he can't, he dominates the frame. All the places that he's been, you see them. You've got the breathing over it, freeze frame images. And they're all stained because we know what happened there now. They're not nice places in a home anymore. We know that this horrible evil force has just been there and penetrated them and distorted them. And that's how the film ends with, you know, evil as a force over everything, really, as the controlling narrative, really. That, to me, is disruption. Of the, that's the character sort of failing in keeping control of things. So the way that the comics would unfold is so much that tiny little event would have to have ripples in the same way Judith Meyer's death has got all these ripples that we're seeing on the shape side of the fence that moment of weakness with that murder and what comes from it is what would come into play later in the comics so Sally's the first manifestation of that her relationship with Laurie Um, her as a character is totally defined by hearing that other call and her, her actions later on come into play with actually where we would have gone to actually resolve all of the comics so it's a it's a failing that he makes quite early on that comes back to haunt him the same way that you know for the for the victims of the character they do something wrong and it comes back for them and that would have been decades later too and so uh yes nice yes. so sally sally had the comics kept going we would not have seen the last of her and i, I remember on uh the halloween comics facebook page you had shared some of the unused art of, of Sally seeing something, and you know I think yes. we can guess what she all, what she may have seen, and so it's yeah, cool to hear she you three that yeah yeah in the rain yeah yeah oh, that's that's so cool and uh, what well, I don't and I know I know obviously we don't want to get too much into what could have been or or whatever else, but I mean is it a thing where would you have even just in your own mind had you planned out the exact logistics of how Laurie faked her death? Would you have worried about going into that or anything, or that that wasn't as interesting? Well, you know, actually, the actual faking of the death mm-hmm. isn't really that interesting. Cause it's legal, really. Yeah, yeah. However, however, we saw. I don't know. It's, that's a tricky one to answer. That's a tricky one to answer. I don't really know how to. No, yeah, and you also don't have to do because obviously you can't share. Yeah, because I don't things. really know how to sort of. I think it's the right emotional place to leave the character where we do with that. Mm-hmm. I 
think that much about it. I'm quite, I'm, you know, I'm quite happy with issue three and how it resolves itself and how it resolves the themes of that story, and also how it sets up where the line was meant to go. We have, you know, the next series is going to be the Mark of Thorn, which was also set up in um, Tommy's Web that we mentioned earlier. Oh, the, the other thing is well, POV in the anthology issue. The reason we did POV as well, because it was a tribute, we wanted to do something that was actually the POV shot. So you had the matching POV shots, do that within a comic book of victim and killer and how they emerged when they converge upon the mirror. That's So it's more of a stylistic exercise, but Miss Haddonfield's obviously story briefly pops up later on. Yeah, and she something else. she does get mentioned in oh gosh, she's autopsist, right? Yeah, as one of as yeah. one of the victims. And for a while, I know on the the Halloween Comics website, they had uh, all the autop- autopsy reports of all these different characters, which uh, which was pretty cool. Did yeah, uh, yeah. did the White Ghost come out after? Uh, was that after um, first Seth White Ghost Road? came out? Yeah, that's um, that, I, I done an outline for that, and that went over to um, my friend Greg Mitchell. And he did a really good job writing it. I did a couple of very minor tweaks at the end just to bring it in line with what we were doing with everything else. But he did a really nice job with that. And that's like a really nice, it's just a little character piece, really. Because we didn't want to, you to be careful when you're like, here's a story for this man and his dog for every character that appears on the screen. Because Halloween's not Star Wars. You start treating all the characters like that. That's <laughs> yeah. the point. But it's, so what we did, we got the story, you know, you've got this guy who dies off screen in Halloween. He's, set, he's still important in a way because he is the shape's first victim outside of the hospital. Yeah, I guess he is. Yeah, he's we, for... That we know of. I mean, if you want it to be funny, you could probably put some more in. And he got bored on the way home or something. Yeah. You know, had a bad cheeseburger on. <laughs> yeah, he kills a cook. Because of it, yeah. yeah, kills a burger flipper and so on. If you're going to, you know, so in a way, it's it's just actually putting it, it's not adding to the halloween plot is just putting a human perspective on what that person who that person was really in a, a real life story so it's a story about a guy that's not really anything to do with halloween until that comes and how that sort of connects to it just again on that sort of closure level for that character hard to explain really it's just a small little piece of normal life i guess yeah it's essentially rather the than, rather than turning a character into a plot point well, and what's it, what do you guys name him it's the it's the mechanic that michael myers kills but a chris uh I can't remember. It's a while now. Well, there's, there's, I think there's Phelps Garage, which is his boss in the story. But Chris, Chris Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens. What am I saying? No, that's 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 a real life, real life guy. Yeah, but um, but yeah, no, and and then obviously the white ghost referring to uh, yeah, Michael Myers, who he he eventually sees. Yeah, it's almost more of just like oh cool, we get to see this this little thing. Personal ghost story, yeah, like the title says, really. Yeah, um, well, man, I guess we've we've gone through just sort of all the individual stories and commented on them, but is there anything else you want to say about them just that we haven't touched upon, whether it's thematically um, or uh, I don't know if, the, if, if fans always ask you burning questions about anything, but anything else you just want to say about the stories themselves? Not really. Um, you know, the, it's a sh- like I say, it's always going to be a shame that they never got out there, but that is what it is. Um, I'm happy with what we did get out. Most of the, I mean, obviously when you look at them, you see certain stuff, you see mistakes and you stuff cringe a little bit, but that's always going to be the way you always want to do things a little better. Yeah. But it's cool that people find them in like years after people find them. I'll get emails about them randomly from people. And that's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm hoping. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I know a lot, a lot of our listeners have found them in one way or another. I, I haven't asked them whether it's through legal means or. Yeah, not for everyone. I mean, that's the thing. It's, you know, the thing with Halloween is there's that many takes of the character, there's that many subjective interpretations as what works, what doesn't. And for every person we please, there's someone there who'll pay the woman and go, well, I thought these were supposed to be good. And I'm like, yeah, okay. 
they've got a very specific take in there really they're not going to please everyone and they're less likely to say if you're a four five six probably not then again you get some people who like one or two don't like them and some people do like the latest sequels that do so i guess it depends what you're looking for really and also it's 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 not the same experience on a comic page i mean another reason we have slight i don't know if they are more violent in the comics i don't know if they are um further detached from the violence in a comic book with it being an illustration rather than as well so i think you can get away with a little bit more but if you have too much actual gore rather than violence because there's not so much gore in there um, it's not halloween anymore it's too friday the 13th yeah i was gonna say there's like i feel like there's blood in the comics but there's not like you're not seeing like intestines and stuff flying no out. i think the murders might be a bit crueler in the comics i think that's probably the better way of looking at it. yeah a bit crueler and a bit longer but they're not particularly more graphic there's a few cruel things that are done to the bodies afterwards. Night Dance being probably the most extreme example of that. Yeah, but like you say, I mean, Night Dance and Night Dance and One Good Scare because they are so much later in the in the chronology of Halloween. I, I buy that Michael has become more elaborate and more sadistic. No, that's that's very deliberate. Yeah, um, we wanted to follow up on, like I say, the serial killer aspects of that and follow that thread further as well, whilst going on the supernatural aspects of it keeping that going because there's only so much you can escalate to and that's the whole reason when you're starting to see him scare people outside of the core with you know like trick-or-treat for example Mm -hmm. and the idea of this like almost like an infection spreading across the town and then laurie's realization that this thing will always be and the only hole in the armor what we ultimately find is that one murder that he did out of character and how that comes back to haunt the shape really and that's where we set up that character, um, it's Monica, a character called Monica who's quite involved with the later issues. She's set up in the back of Night Dance. Um, we've got the black rose imagery as well. That's the other thing that you see all the way through. I don't know if you noticed that. There's a few black roses, so that imagery sort of connects to that. Oh, well. I, oh, I didn't know that. I mean, I, I remember the black rose. Um, I think it's in the Sam illustrations, right? You see a black rose. Yeah, and... you'll find it, I think... Um, Charlie mentions it. Charlie. Oh, he does. He talks about the black, the black flowers blooming and everything like that. Oh, so that comes. That imagery would have come back in a in a more direct way. Yeah, that's sort of you. That's like like the actual plants wanting to grow in the background. You know, we're slowly seeing this thing. Oh, cool. Coming up. That's sort of in the same way. Night Dance has got certain abstract visuals with the ballerina and the rainbows and stuff expressing some of the story elements. We do that with you know with the black rose it goes on as well. So you also, if you look at the first step. Nice. I love a night dance too. How we see when Michael is in the fun house, he sees the uh, um, what's that actor's name who played the clown, like the homeless clown, Emma Emma Kelly. Yeah, I love how he sees that. But then first after Laurie Strode, we actually see that 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 is a costume he he used at at a certain point. Um, That's super cool and very creepy. Yeah, I like the idea of him just hiding in plain sight though, because he's just shadowing her, and a good voyeur knows how to move on scene. At that point, for him to turn up in, in the costume wouldn't work. But for him to do that, he can, you know, if he was there, you know, how much of that's in her head or not, something, but he can step inside, he can be right there, right next to her. Yeah. And he's, you know, it's, it's that whole thing about tormenting. Um, I think that issue was called that, wasn't it? That does sound right, something like that, yeah. Those are all Ensor paintings as well, the titles of... Um, oh, re- oh, is that the is that the painting that she has in her house in the first movie? Yes, he's a Flemish painter and he did a lot of stuff involving masks. Oh, that is so cool. Really interesting. And I wouldn't be surprised, you know, carpenters well-educated on these things. I wouldn't be surprised if that's a deliberate choice of a painter to have in her bedroom. Yeah, I feel like I I remember... Extensively paints masks. So what we did, well, for the actual issue titles, 
each one of those is named after one of his sketches that are related to the issue at hand. Oh, wow, that's wild. Title. But not only that, they're all... I was quite pleased, actually. It's one of those things where doing your homework actually benefits you, but all three of them <laughs> are actually stored in Chicago. So it's quite possible that Laurie would have seen these on a school trip, which is why she's got the print there. Oh, man. So, oh, like, at, at uh, the Art Institute in Chicago, all of them are there? Yes. Oh, yes. I wish I would have... Uh, I've been there a million times. I, I've never sought those specific paintings you out. Actually, you can actually... If you put the titles of the issues into Google mm-hmm. and don't put Halloween, just put the issue titles in, the actual correct images will show up. Oh man, I'm gonna do that after we get off this call. I knew I knew that that painter in the film had done a lot of uh, mask motifs in his work. I had no idea that the comic titles were all based on those paintings. What? What? In a to make it all Aunt Laurie really on every level, um, who she is, the things she'd be surrounded by. Ah, that's such cool trivia. What, now, what about the night dance titles? Because those have very, very uh, evocative titles as well. Like that was it... more just sort of going with the dreamy feel of the actual. I mean, because night dance is really a coming of age story. Yeah, it doesn't work out well because you know it's, it's basically it could be called growing up is hard. Growing up is hard. Yeah, I mean that's what it is ultimately. It's it's that's a coming of age story in the same way that Carrie would be, um, but they don't obviously get through to the other side. Ah, that's cool. And again, and a lot of it is, is Night Dance specifically. I don't know how you could like the shape as a character at the end of that. I wanted to make him like horrible, horrible, because they've done, you know, those kids are nice in the most traditional sense. Mm-hmm. In the most, you know, all three of them should be survivors in your standard horror movie by how they behave. Um, and this is just this horrible thing that comes into town and just just annihilates them. Yeah, that's true. Because uh... he just gets exactly what he wants as well. And it's cold. He's very cold. He's very cruel. Even those who aren't his primary target, like Nikki, for example, the murders are very. They're almost personality specific in a certain way, which you know you could argue is possibly a little bit Freddy Krueger, but I don't think so. I think it's more about the fact that Halloween is. If it's done right, it's horror of abjection. You know, what you throw away, what you don't want to deal with, your own insecurities made into this form. And on Halloween night, that form becomes, you know, that form walks among us, really. This horrible thing. Everything you're scared of puts on a white mask comes walking around. So that's that's the approach in all of them, really. But night dance is where it's, but it's coldest, I'd say. Yeah, that's a good point. I like what you said because if you think about it, um, yeah, Lisa's afraid of the dark, right? So if she dies in the well, she she does die, right? There's no way she's getting out of that the, that coffin. <laughs> uh, when the the final story of the comic arc, actually, one of the starting scenes with that is when her body's found. Ah, oh, man, you're killing me. What what so could have been? That's yeah, in the final in the final one. So they do confirm yeah, it then. Well, some more, we did some more stuff with Lindsay Wallace so I was planning to do more stuff with Lindsay Wallace in the back of Thorn because there's like a lot of Tommy's past in there because I knew this is an example you know of where you think of someone but you don't know where it'll be I knew I wanted to do a little bit more to Lindsay's past just to sort of acknowledge what happened in One Good Scare because One Good Scare was only done as a one shot and it was written on the off chance we could get a singular Halloween title out if I had more space I would have gone into Lindsay a lot more I think the character warrants a bit more exploration there, but there's a little bit more of her past because it went well with Tommy's past in the Mark of Thorn, you see, so we can flesh out on them that way. Yeah, so you, you would see some of so the idea too. I had for the... You know, I knew I wanted to do something. I knew something about it, but I had my idea where then when the Mark of Thorn came along, and there it was. Because a lot of stuff, you'll have ideas for the characters, and you'll have stories from them, but they won't fit in. So I like to know a bit more about them than what I'm writing. So if I've got stories that I never use that become surplus to the character, that's fine. 
that's fine. You don't need to tell everything that happened to them. It makes the lives feel really small if you do. Yeah, no, totally. Oh man, I love hearing all that too. And uh, yeah, and I, and I would agree that yeah, Night Dance is probably Michael at his coldest and cruelest. But that does yeah, that does not bother me in the slightest. And yeah, those kids really they don't have sex, they don't do drugs, they don't do anything that would normally lead to high schoolers getting killed <laughs> in a horror movie. They go to the carnival. We're coming after Resurrection again. It's that same thing. I just felt that we really had to go to a very very. We got we got too far away from how the how the character should be in Resurrection for me. It was too, it was too goofy, you know. The, it was character humiliation for um, the villain there, really. I mean, when he's getting his testicles electrocuted, and the the soundtrack actually had over the top of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, you've got so far away from this shadowy, ethereal, untouchable, murderous presence. You know, lots of adjectives there, but um, you get what I mean. We've gone we've gone we've gone into parody, and. We've kind of done what Jason Lives did with the character. I'm saying Jason Lives worked because it, and again, I'm not really a fan of that approach, but it worked because he did it deliberately. Jason Lives knows exactly. It's very self-aware, yeah, unlike Resurrection. Yes. I don't feel Resurrection is. I don't feel Resurrection understands what it's doing to its villain. And I'm not talking about the qualities of a film. I'm talking about it on that level, what it understands, you know, in terms of its villain and how that villain should be portrayed. And the impact of those actions upon him, it, it's its not entertaining anymore for me, really, in the sense that I want to watch a Halloween film for. Yeah, no, totally. Well, I mean, I said this when I when I wrote that AV Club article. I, I really do think the comics are the best Halloween sequels um, of the past 30 or however many years. So thank you for reclaiming some of that. Um, it's something we always ask our guests. Is there uh, anything you want to promote right now? Any Anything you want to direct people toward uh, that you're working on? Um, no, no, I've just uh, got my head down scribbling away at the moment, so we'll see what comes of that or what doesn't. So, yeah, no, but no, thank you for having me. It's all good fun. No, thank you. I mean, it's been, uh, I've loved these comics for years, so it's super cool to get to sit, not sit down, but talk to you over over uh, over satellites and yeah, oceans. Yeah, I don't, I don't generally, you know, because I don't, I don't really talk about them because it's a while ago now and I don't want to be, you know, sort of carpering on about things long gone for too much but um i've not really spoke about them all as a whole so yeah yeah i think it's probably the last time i'll probably waffle about them you hear that listeners yeah last time so yeah well th- thank you so much for talking about these i mean this has like been a dream of mine and um yeah i'm hoping the listeners oh, enjoy all this too Consequence Podcast Network.